I know better than to get into a verbal dispute with a song leader, so I'll just say thanks for having me today, and I hope that you'll have me back. Um, couple of procedural announcements that I meant to mention earlier. Uh, one of those, or both of those related to our Bible classes. Um, this Wednesday evening we will meet, but we will all meet here in the auditorium, and so there will be no individual classes, so be prepared for that. Um, at least that was my understanding of how things have been arranged. I've been out of pocket <clears throat> somewhat, and so uh, just want to make sure you knew that. And also, um, all of the adult classes have been meeting in here on Sunday night because of my absence. That will continue for the rest of this quarter, and uh, we'll have more explanation as to why that is um, in the next week or so, so that you can know that fully. But you've been meeting in here if you're out of high school on Sunday nights in Sam's class, and so we'll do that again tonight together, and uh, then we'll let you know from that point forward what the plan uh, will be. A couple of things I want to say, if you'll give me and allow me um, a moment of, of, of personal reflection, thanksgiving for those who are here this morning. We have a number of visitors in our midst today. Uh, we have a number of our own members that are out, perhaps out of town, perhaps sick, perhaps distancing because of the coronavirus. And uh, obviously, as we mentioned earlier, maybe tuning in, hopefully so, and uh, we're glad that you are. We have visitors from a great distance away who are very close to uh, a lot of people here and family, but I have family in town uh, this weekend and this week, and I'm thankful for that. Uh, Blake and Katie are here. Blake came our first few months here um, when he was still in high school, and um, he's been back maybe once since then, but uh, is married now and is here with his wife, and I know we throw this word around a lot about how proud we are of people. Um, I'm going to probably tell you that I couldn't be any prouder of, of a single individual who they've grown to be from, from the struggles that they were put in, not to their own making. And uh, I love and appreciate them and glad they're here. Also, um, on a personal note, but also a congregational note, um, if I can find the right words. Um, to tell Brennan and Savannah how much we love them and um, how that selfishly I'm thankful that this is happening now the way it is because it it means they're going to be right down the road and it means they're going to be close to us and it means the Canyon Lake community is going to be extremely blessed with two faithful, dedicated workers in God's kingdom, a phenomenal pulpit preacher and uh, I just regret that I missed in person uh, Brennan's last official sermon uh, here with us, but uh, I love him and her and appreciate them and uh, know that the Lord will bless them richly in whatever they do for him in the future. It is that time of year, that is the time that we stop and take inventory and stock the last sermon of the calendar year, and if I'm, if I'm privileged to preach that sermon, and in most years that's, that's my responsibility uh, here, uh, we take time to pause and to reflect, to look forward and to consider who we are and where we've come and what we've accomplished and maybe what we failed in and some challenges that maybe we've overcome and some things that lie ahead. 
Now, you might think that doing this sermon in this year is almost an impossibility. I mean, how can you really assess 2020? As Buddy prayed earlier, many of us have been longing for the end of this year, not realizing maybe as we long for it that when the calendar strikes January 1, we're still going to be in a pandemic. We're still going to be distancing from one another. We're still going to be struggling with the same things that we're struggling with. Those who've lost loved ones are still going to have the grief that that comes and and goes uh, from day to day and and maybe even from hour to hour connected with that. It won't change anything. So is it really possible in a year like this to stop and to take stock? I mean, what are we going to count? In all honesty, what are we going to count? Are we going to look at at attendance numbers and get some kind of gauge on where we're at and what we're doing and and how good we're doing in, in the world? We're going to look at, at, at contribution numbers. Are we going to look at, at the number of visitors that we've had to, to extracurricular functions? Or are we going to just count the number of those that have been canceled? We have nothing to measure mission trips or VBS by for this year. So, so it's really even possible for us to, to, to in a year that, that's become a euphemism for disaster, to consider what 2020 really looks like. We would spend this time considering what we've gained, mourning what we've lost, admitting what didn't work, stepping out in faith in some areas that we struggled in, right wrongs, admit shortcomings, celebrate victories, acknowledge accomplishments, reflect, replay, and review. Now, maybe because of the just unique situation, It allows us for just a moment to step away from the usual questions that we ask. Step away from the normal assessment that we give to to see whether or not we're really doing and have done what we should be doing, what we should have done, and ask some different questions. For example, we might ask this morning, are we a congregation whose faith is spoken of throughout the entire world as the Roman congregation in Romans chapter 1 and verse 5. Are we a church that others use as an example of generosity and liberality, as Paul used the Macedonians in 2 Corinthians chapter 8? Are we a congregation known for our labor of love, our work of faith, and our steadfastness of hope, as the Thessalonians were in 1 Thessalonians 1.3? Does anyone thank God regularly for our participation in sharing in the gospel with them, Philippians 1.4. Has the Lord seen our toiling and our perseverance, Revelation 2.3, as he did the congregation in Ephesus? Has the Lord seen our love and our service as he did the congregation in Thyatira in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 19? Does the Lord know those here who have kept his name and his word as he said to the Church in Philadelphia in Revelation 3, 8. So those are all good questions. But I want us to turn back to our scripture reading from this morning. I want us to take our question from there. Go back to Acts chapter 11. The congregation in Acts 11, and then again highlighted in Acts 13, is a congregation that sort of flies under the radar in our Bible study. Now, it, it shouldn't, and maybe for serious Bible students who study all the way through the, the, the New Testament on a regular basis, we're familiar with the church in Antioch. But for the, the casual Bible reader, may not even realize or know that that church 
is in the Bible. And the reason for that is there's no letter written to it. Okay, You can't go to the table of contents, go to the, the, the tabs on your Bible and find the letter written to Antioch. To me, that makes this church all the more significant and important. Why were letters written generally to New Testament churches? Because they were having problems. And there needed to be some type of, of authoritative mandate laid down, a, 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 a set of solutions handed over to them, a, a way of working through the doctrinal or moral practices that they were struggling with. There's no letter like that, Antioch. In fact, I would dare say that, that everything you read about this congregation on the pages of Scripture is positive and encouraging and, 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 and God-honoring. So if we're going to take a, a passage or a thought or a comment about a congregation and then offer a comparison, a, a, a contrast, a, a set of questions to, to review the year, Antioch would be one of those churches, if not the church, that we might consider. Now, I think it needs to be pointed out, just for contextual purposes, that I don't believe the story of Antioch is in the book of Acts just so that we can compare ourselves to it today. Their situation was unique. Their, their makeup was, was different. Their, their, their place in the history of the church is profound. And maybe we don't see ourselves, and maybe rightly so, we shouldn't see ourselves as an Antioch. However, in fact, I think the reason that it's there is primarily, first and foremost, for historical purposes. Luke is writing a, a, a historically accurate account of the events of the early church, just like he did about the life of Christ in the book of Luke. He carries that over, continues it again, and, and I believe the reason you have names and places and, and events torn from secular history and religious history and put side by side in the, in the book of Acts is so that Luke could be factual and fact-checked. So someone could come along and say, listen, was, was Luke really inspired? Was, was his historical record really true? Well, it was, because we can believe him about this over here religiously because he had the date right, and he had the places right, and he had the rulers right. In fact, some have suggested that, that Luke was preparing this story, this narrative in the book of Acts, as part of Paul's legal defense as he stood would later stand before the, the, the emperor and, and give his defense as to why he believed in Christ. I don't know if we could ever verify that or prove it, but there's a whole lot of stuff being packed into a short amount of time in the book of Acts, and Antioch stands out as one of those churches. And notice what it says, and here's the line we'll use from, from 11.23. We'll notice some things in 11 and also some things in 13 this morning as we, as we flesh out the remainder of our lesson together. The Bible says in verse 23 that when they arrived and witnessed the grace of God, or when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. So instead of all those other questions this morning, what I want us to ask in review of 2020 is, have they seen the grace of God here? Have they witnessed God's grace in this place, among these people in the year 2020? That's one of the most interesting descriptions in all of the, the, the New Testament about what someone saw when they looked at a local church. Barnabas arrives and he sees the grace of God. Now, I don't know that we can determine fully with any, with any definite conclusion exactly what led Barnabas to make, to, to make that statement, to make that observation, and to see that. I'll give you my opinion, again, just so textually and contextually we understand what's going on 
Bible reveals earlier in the chapter that those that were scattered at the stoning of Stephen had gone all over preaching, but they had only preached to the, to the Jews. Yet we know, based on the predictions of Jesus and in, 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 in his gospel or his, in, his, uh, in his earthly ministry, based on the prophecies of the Old Testament, there would be a day the Gentiles would be included in. In fact, the book of Acts begins by telling us that the disciples would go into the uttermost parts of the earth and they would, in fulfilling the Great Commission, preach the gospel to every creature would include Jew and Gentile. But to this point, that hasn't happened. There's been the inclusion of, of, of Cornelius, but those who've gone out and were scattered had only preached the Jews. The Bible makes that clear to us. And yet, almost as a setup, by telling us that, were then told, and then some of them began to preach to the Gentiles. And you had Jew, and you had Gentile, you had both being brought into one body. And then Barnabas comes on the scene, and he sees the grace of God. If you want to cross-reference, you can put there in your notes, Acts chapter 15, beginning in about verse 6, and going down around verse 15. There, they're going to relay the events of the inclusion of the Gentiles and they're going to use the phrase that the grace of God was extended to the Gentiles. That's just a few chapters later from Acts 13 or Acts 11. I believe what's being said here is that Barnabas witnessed the inclusion of all men in the gospel and he saw the grace of God and he was impressed in the city of Antioch. Now, we're not going to use that particular vantage point this morning. But it all rests under that heading, friends. Every evaluation that we make, every assessment that we do has to be brought under this umbrella of are we doing God's will in the place where we're at? And God's number one chief objective in life is to save the lost, Jew or Gentile, man or woman, bond or free, and to bring them all into one body. And so that question then can be asked and answered regardless of a worldwide pandemic or social distancing or worshiping in quarantine or canceling certain extracurricular activities of the local church, of having to revamp and, and, and realign our Bible classes and be flexible, as flexible as any year we've ever had to be, we can still determine whether or not they've seen the grace of God here. In this place. And so four quick questions. And I I will be quick and brief. Number one. Have they seen us consistent in our practices? I believe these are four ways that the grace of God will be seen. You see that that idea of grace in the New Testament is not just the one time offer of salvation through Christ. It's not just the forgiveness of sins. That word is used in, in a plurality of ways. Grace is a teacher according to Titus. It's the act of giving, according to Paul in the Corinthian letter. It's the mystery of of, of the gospel and being able to spread that, according to Paul in the book of Ephesians. And it is that which saves us, Ephesians 2 and verse 8. It It is the work, the attributes... And the aspect of God. When, when someone extends grace, they're not always necessarily simply extending the forgiveness of sins. It may be money. It may be their own forgiveness in restoring a relationship. It may be the, 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 the responsibility God's imparted to them, and they see that as grace. And so when we think about this, has the world, has our community, have our circle of friends seen us consistent in our practices? It was read earlier in our scripture reading that when Barnabas came there, 
verse number 26, that he met with the church an entire year. You notice what they did? They gathered together and they preached the gospel. Now, I don't know what else happened in Antioch for that entire year. I'm going to suggest to you somebody got sick. Somebody buried a loved one. Somebody had a spouse that left them or committed adultery and cheated on them. Someone in Antioch lost a job. Went from a place of comfort to a place of poverty. I'm going to suggest that someone in Antioch fell away from the Lord's church. Stopped believing in what they had committed to. I would dare say in that calendar year that countless people turned away the advances of the Antioch congregation and wanted nothing to do with this one named Jesus. And yet, the sum of the year was this. We stayed there a year and we worshiped together and we taught the gospel. You know, if it could be said of us, as this year goes out, as we look back at who we are, that no matter what we faced, no matter what we went through, no matter what we suffered, no matter what we struggled with, that we were a people who worshiped God and taught the lost, friends, they would see the grace of God here. They'd see it. It's exactly who we're supposed to be. And that has nothing to do, again, with, with what's going on in our world. It has to do with what's going on in the hearts and minds and, and actions and feet and hands of God's people wherever they are. Have they seen us consistent in our practices? Or have they seen us fundamentally changed? Now, I, I know some things changed this year. In fact, if you can remember back to this year before shutdowns and lockdowns, some, other, some things had already changed, hadn't they? We revamped our entire Sunday morning structure, our Sunday evening structure. We redid our Bible class setup and makeup. And then three weeks later, we weren't here. And we're still trying to recover from that. But I'd ask this question, has any of that or should any of that fundamentally change people who worship and teach the lost? Shouldn't. In fact, if we are, and I believe some of us lament, and I'll be honest with you, I've been on the edge of this myself this year. Something's different. Something's changed. Listen, if we are fundamentally different than we were this time last year, that's on us. It's not on the situation of the world. It's not on what political leaders have decided. It's not on the way our neighbors have treated us. When we see the grace of God, we see people who are consistent in their practices. Isn't that the very nature of who God is? A God who doesn't change? What he prayed about? God with whom there is no shadow or variation of turning, James chapter 1. He's consistent and his people then are consistent. They will see the grace of God when they see us consistent in our practices. Number two, have they seen us caring for the needy? Have they seen us caring for the needy? See, if you keep reading past our scripture reading in chapter 11, you're going to find verse 27 beginning. Now at this time some prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. Again, there's the facts of the case in Luke's account. He's, he's verifying even his own writing. And in 
the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief to the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas, in the charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. Now I realize that what's said here postdates what Barnabas saw. Okay? Barnabas saw grace when he got there, but in a place where grace existed, this is the outcome. When people had need, burdens were shared. Contributions were taken. In fact, there's, a, there's a, 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 an understanding here of the, the New Testament concept of contribution in this text. In the Old Testament, they had a percentage and a, and a requirement they had to give. But in the New, it's a free will offering solely. By, by what God's given us, we then in turn give to help others. That's what grace does. See, it's really not a graceful thing to take and to take and to take and not give. Grace is a, a free-flowing exchange. When God gives to me, I give to someone else. And when someone else, I give to someone else, they give to someone else. And they turn and give back to me. And we continue to give to God. And this reciprocal environment that we're in. I remember one of the first workshops we had here. Brother David Shannon asked this question. And it's stuck in my mind. It's a sobering thought. He asked, and he wasn't talking just to the church in San Marcos because there were congregations from all over gathered. He said, if your church shut its doors tomorrow, would the community even know? You ever thought about that? How would our not meeting, not being a congregation, which is legitimately a possibility somewhere in the future, friends. Not every congregation rests and, and resides until the Lord returns. Some some die off, some move off, some splinter off. If we closed our doors tomorrow, would our world know? Would it impact our community? You know, think about the, the benevolence. And I don't mean by this, friends, the benevolence that's shared from the, from the contribution plate to homes that need it. That, that's, that's another subject for another time, I suppose. I, I mean individually. This is an individual assessment of who we are. If we stop living and working in this community or the community where you do live and work, as a Christian, would, would, would the people know it? Would, would they be aware of it? Think about when Jesus met a man who needed to walk and Jesus had it within his power to raise him up. What did Jesus do? Raised him up. When a leprous man came to Jesus and, and needed his, his spots cleansed and Jesus had the power to do it, what did Jesus do? He healed him. In fact, sometimes we'll reference Peter and John at the gates of Jerusalem and they'll say, silver and gold have I none, but what I do give to you, arise and walk. And we'll use that as a means to say, listen, we're not about benevolence in the physical sense, we're about sharing the gospel. Do you notice Peter's qualifier? I don't have gold or silver. How do I know that if he, did, that if he had gold and silver, he wouldn't have said, get up and walk and here's some money along the way. The idea that we are just here to have a Bible study with someone when they want it, when they happen to venture by our building, happen to sit in our classes, happen to sit in our assemblies, and that we have no responsibility to the physical plight of our world around us leaves us in a pretty difficult place outside even the mission of Christ himself. When he had it within his power, he did with it, and he helped for it. Have they seen the grace of God here? 
amongst us? Because our, our bank records reflect the grace of God. Not, not the one who gives, but as one who gives back. Number three, we have to turn over to chapter 13 of Acts for these next couple. Have they seen us impartial in our relationships? You see, because the book of Acts isn't just a congregational survey from here to there, there's a lot of information that's plugged into chapter 12 as chapter 11 ends and chapter 13 opens. When we come back to 13, guess, guess who shows up again? Antioch. And now they're far more prominent in the the religious landscape than they were earlier. In fact, they're going to be then the bedrock of mission work from this point forward for Paul and his journeys. There are a couple of things in the opening verses of chapter 13 we also learn about what it means to see the grace of God among a congregation of people. Have they seen us impartial in our relationship? If you read verse 13, or chapter 1 of verse 13, you're going to find a number of, of teachers and prophets that are mentioned. Barnabas and, and, and Simeon and, and Lucius and Menane and, and, and even Saul. Now if you do some, some background work, some history work into those individuals, you have men of all different locations, perhaps of all different races, of all different religious backgrounds. Barclay said about this list of people here in this place, this little group is an example of the unifying influence of Christianity. Individuals from many lands and many backgrounds had discovered the secret of togetherness because they had discovered the secret of Christ. And they were one united together group despite all of their differences outside of Christ. And the implication would be that they treated one another fairly and equally in those relationships. Has the grace of God been seen here in that sense? I I believe that it has. I pray that it has. I'll say this. When I was sick, you were a tremendous congregation of people. A tremendous congregation of people. Prayers, calls, surprises left on the doorstep. Someone would ring the doorbell and run as fast as they could get away from the house. You know, preachers get that a lot. Sometimes why people want to preach. They like the meals. They like the attention. You know what? That should be the case with every church member who struggles with anything. And I believe that it is. But it should be if it's not. Are we impartial in our relationships? You know, every election year, every single election year, You have people that gather in the same building for worship who are on opposite sides of the political aisle. Now, some may not voice it, they may not share it, they may not show it, but you have them in in every congregation I've ever been a part of. You have both sides of that aisle. This year, that has been heightened, hasn't it? To a degree beyond any semblance of civility or compassion or love or togetherness in most relationships. 
I mean, people that won't gather with, with family this year because of their disagreements politically. Literally. And, and what's, what's been the worst part about it is, is that political divide has, has found its way in through other means. We, we sometimes, tongue-in-cheek, and I'm going to be very careful to say what I'm about to say. Sometimes we tongue-in-cheek look back and we think, how could the church divide over whether to have Bible classes or not to have Bible classes, or whether to, to cover the communion or not to cover the communion, or whether to have one cup or, or multiple cups, whether to have a kitchen in the building or don't have a kitchen in the building. And, and we sometimes shake our, our, our heads and, and wag our fingers at the generations of the past and we think, how could you be so divided over it? Could you imagine that if in another six months' time we have Christians not speaking to one another over mask issues? I believe it's very likely in the Lord's church that you will have people, and maybe already have, who've determined someone else's spiritual worth and value and commitment based on whether they wear a mask or whether they don't wear a mask. And they're on both sides of the aisle, and they both believe they have a biblical right to push what they think. May we be a people who can show the grace of God even when we are 100% convinced in our heart that we're right and someone else is wrong. Especially over matters that will never be found in Scripture. I mean, Paul told them in the, in the New Testament church to stop dividing over whether you eat meat offered to idols or observe past religious holy days. He didn't say, go find another place to worship. Go get as many people on your side about your view as you can and then convince the elders that's the right practice. In fact, to a congregation who suffered from that, he told them at the beginning of the letter, speak the same thing. So he told them, speak the same thing. Well, how do you speak the same thing when one will offer, eat a meat offered to idol and the other won't? By saying this, I'm not going to judge you based on that. Have they seen the grace of God in this place? Have they seen us impartial in our relationships? Finally, this comes back full circle to where we began. Have they seen our concern for the lost? It's really what it all boils down to, isn't it? And what the world would like us to do is fight about carpet colors, communion coverings, face coverings, pandemics, political issues, because the more we fight and worry and put energy toward that, the more people end up lost because the people who have the answer, the grace of God, aren't sharing it. Antioch didn't get caught up in that. Even as diverse as they were, their agenda was the gospel, locally and abroad. We learned about the local in chapter 11. Now the abroad in chapter 13, because if you read on in, in, in verses 2 through 3, you're going to find that they call together Paul and Barnabas, and they pray for them. They lay hands on them. They fast. They send them out to the work. And then they begin to report back. And Antioch becomes this, this sort of home base of operations. Now the rest of the book, wherever the gospel went that Paul preached, Antioch went too. 
and, and, and received and should have gotten some of the credit for what was done. Now, I would think for us, as a group of people, this place, that we would consider ourselves evangelistic, right? I'm not setting you up for any kind of, but that's not true statement, that we would be considered an evangelistic congregation. The money we spend in mission work, the efforts that are made somewhat to outreach and 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 in normal years, the, the the emphasis we have on doing things according to, to the biblical way and not adding anything to it is, I believe, a refreshing concept, and people want to know that. I believe all that's true, but there's something in this text that I believe is sorely overlooked in most congregations, and I would say even here at university. That is, when it came time to evangelize their prayer life reflected how serious they were about it. Why don't our prayers reflect more the heart of a people who want everyone in this town to know the gospel? I think it's a serious question starting with the one standing in front of you and his prayers. Why doesn't it reflect that? Is it because we know that when we ask God to open doors of opportunity that we've got to step through them? So it might mean not using the self-checkout at HEB, but going through and talking to the clerk as we leave out, maybe to establish a relationship. It means when someone asks a Bible question, rather than saying, you know, I know we disagree on that, but, but I, I don't want to hurt our friendship, we say, wait a minute, you know what, there might be some, some legitimacy to your question. Let's open a Bible and study with the understanding that we may get to a point that friend doesn't want to be friends anymore. Now, if I've created that situation and brought tension to a Bible study, I need to check that. But if I'm just an individual who says, listen, I want my relationship the way they are, my life the way it is, I want to do things the way I do them, and if someone just so happens to come to me and say, you know what, I believe just like you, will you baptize me? Sure. Friends, that's not evangelism. That's convenience. Do our prayer lives reflect the fact that we are a people who believe in the grace of God? And realize that he can, even in 2020, turn San Marcos, Texas upside down with the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we believe it and our prayer lives reflect it, then friends, they've seen the grace of God here. How many people that we have sat around the dinner table with in the last two months who are closer to us than anybody on the earth but are not members of the Lord's church have heard us say to them let me talk to you about the grace of God and how many of those names have been brought before the throne of heaven to God to say God give me just one chance so that they might know you have they seen the grace of God here? There might be a thousand other questions this morning that we could ask. But I'm not sure one any more important or significant than this one. See, the thing about it is God's grace is so powerful. If I don't show it to them, they're probably eventually going to see it anyway. The sun rises in the morning, it sets in the evening. The showers rain down from heaven. And the rainbows are in the sky. 
when the gospel of Jesus Christ is lived and practiced and kindness is shown in our world, they see God's grace, but am I the vehicle through which they see it? If they haven't seen it in your life, friends, maybe it's time for a personal assessment of where you stand with the Lord and how committed you are to His way or just keeping house. Maybe as a congregation we should ask the very same thing. Because when the calendar year flips 2021, we'll still have everything we have right now at our disadvantage. With the greatest source of power and mercy and love at our disposal. And God's grace will always win. The question is where we will cast our lots. If you're not a Christian want to talk more about it, you've been away from the church and want to come home, if you need the prayers of the church to be more committed, if you need prayers of the church to be more prayerful, that God might open doors, we invite you to come. Anything that we can do to help while we stand and while we sing.